Once again, we have a wonderful opportunity to look into the word of the living God. And I would encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you haven't been with us, we go through various epistles, various passages of Scripture verse by verse, and we now come to verse 2 through verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 11 in our study of this wonderful epistle to the church at Corinth. And as you will understand, as we look into the text, this has to do with biblical male-female role relationships. Now, before I read the text and we begin to unpack it together, let me just say this is a very fascinating passage of Scripture. And at first glance, it may seem difficult to interpret. But frankly, once you get past the cultural issues concerning head coverings for women, for example, the central thrust of the passage becomes quite evident. Because, dear friends, here we have a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. Male-female role relationships, especially as it relates to matters of authority and submission, are to reflect the relationship that exists within the triune Godhead. This is what we are going to see. Though men and women are created equal in their essential dignity, they are also very different. God has ordained for men to have the responsibility to lead, to provide, and to protect. And God has ordained women to have a complementary and supportive role, to affirm and to submit to godly leadership. And we will see that the wearing of head coverings was a way for women of that culture to symbolize their subordinate relationship to men, particularly wives to husbands. And it really communicated a, a submissive demeanor, as did other kinds of of feminine adornment. And it also symbolized the joyful acceptance of God's will regarding male-female relationships. And therefore, for Christian women of that day, wearing a head covering while ministering or worshiping was a way that she expressed her devotion and submission to her husband as well as her commitment to God. While the same principles apply today, the cultural expression of head coverings is is meaningless, meaningless in in our culture and should therefore not be considered normative for all cultures. Paul is not laying down a principle that all women are required to worship and lead in informal Bible studies, as we will see, with their heads covered. However, the underlying principle of Subordination transcends all cultures. How a woman worships and ministers should always be done in such a way as to indicate her submission to authority of male leadership and an expression of godly femininity. In fact, we see that there is a direct correlation between women taking leadership, especially in churches, and the loss of femininity. In fact, as we will see, matters of feminine adornment and submission to male leadership are all part of this same passage. 
Paul makes it clear that men should dress like men and women should dress like women. They should dress in ways that are distinctly male. So I'm just kind of summarizing what he is going to say here. Any blurring of the lines between masculinity and femininity is a base inversion of God's creative order. Moreover, it violates God's ordained distinction between the sexes. Men are to look like men and act like men as defined by one's culture. Women are to look like women and to act like women. Now, as you can tell from this brief summary, God's plan and purpose for male and female relationships is radically different than Satan's plan and purpose that is expressed in the world in which we live and the culture in which we live. Because our culture is made up of people, by and large, who reject God and who deny the authority of his word. Even among many evangelical churches today, we see women embracing views of feminism. Things like advocating co-regency in marriage, where they're both in charge, so to speak. Women serving as officers and elders in churches. Women being ordained as pastors. And the result of this is devastating. By the way, women in leadership in a church in Scripture is always a sign of defection. For example, you have the woman Jezebel in Revelation 2. Uh, probably, that was probably a pseudonym for a false prophetess who led the church into immorality and idolatry, like her Old Testament counterpart Jezebel did with the Jews. And we also see the disastrous effects of this distortion of male-female relationships in marriage and in families whenever roles are reversed or when they're ignored. And by the way, this began in the garden with Adam and Eve. You will recall Eve was created to be Adam's suitable helper. And like all women, she was designed to respond to the loving leadership of her husband. But she usurped that leadership and acted independently of him. And in her vulnerability, she was deceived. But Adam also violated his role as a leader. Instead, he followed the lead of his wife and embraced her sin and thus violated God's plan for the roles of the sexes. And as a result, the whole human race fell into sin. And today we see the effects of sin. But ultimately, I might add, the responsibility for the fall rested on Adam and not on Eve since he chose to disobey God apart from being deceived. We read about that in, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Timothy 2, for example. Now, bear in mind, God understands what happens when godly, biblical, male and female role relationships are disregarded. Whenever that happens, there will be the confusion of sexual identity. And that will lead to moral perversions. And we see that today in the perversions of homosexuality and transvestism and, and transsexualism and all of those types of things. And all of those types of, of perversions really defy God's creative order. And they are, again, a, a base inversion of God's moral order. 
And today, gender confusion is so rampant that if anybody holds a biblical view of maleness and femaleness, they're labeled as a bigot or a misogynist or a chauvinist or a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. Worse yet, today we not only see churches ordaining women into the pastorate, we see them ordaining homosexuals. This is inconceivably blasphemous, dear friends. So what we have before us in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, is of profound importance, even though it might seem confusing, and hopefully it won't be by the time we finish our study of it. But, but this passage speaks to a, a broader cultural agenda, far beyond the first century Corinthian church, far beyond the first century Greco-Roman world. It speaks to us today. And as we look at this, you want to ask yourself, Does my view of male-female relationships and roles match up with God's view? Now, obviously, a biblical worldview is going to be radically different than a pagan worldview like the one that dominates our culture. For the pagan, man is the final authority, right? For the Christian, God is the final authority, and his will is revealed, we know, in the canon of Scripture, the Holy Bible. And so we obey what God has revealed in his word, not what Satan has revealed through doctrines of demons that man has embraced in his depravity. We embrace the law of God in the context of grace given in our Lord Jesus Christ, revealed in the entirety of Scripture. And we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching and reproof, for for correction, for training in righteousness. Moreover, as Christians, we reject the very popular idea of the creator being in the creation and the creation being in the creator, this new age philosophy that's just sweeping the nation. Instead, we see an infinite distinction between the creator and his creation. He is holy, we are not. He is the creator, we are the creatures. And he alone is the transcendent lawgiver. And we are his mere creation. Therefore, we are subject to his standard of righteousness. He's the one that makes the rules. We are also violators of his righteous standard. And therefore, we are in desperate need of his saving grace through faith in his beloved son, our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I might say with all kindness and, and humility, if you bristle, at what I am saying as God's messenger here today, you do so at your own peril. And as Christians who, by God's grace, have been given spiritual sight and life, we we must remain compassionate and loving and patient with those who remain in a state of spiritual darkness and death. They do what they do because they can do no different. We must love them and speak the truth to them that they too might be forgiven and justified and transformed and so on. I'm still reeling from this last week. Forty-four senators voted in favor of infanticide and against protecting born-alive babies who survive attempted abortions. By the way, that includes all the Democratic senators running for president in 2020. Absolutely incomprehensible. 
But folks, we must have compassion on these people and others that embrace these types of things. This is what you expect people to do who are dead in their sins, who are alienated from God, as we read in Scripture. They're darkened in their understanding. They, they are of their father, the devil. They, they, they don't know any different. And were it not for God's grace, we would be among them. We must remember that. So with this background, let's hear the word of the Lord regarding male and female role relationships. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. The Apostle Paul says this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man has, was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, I wish to examine this section of Scripture under four headings that I hope will be helpful for you. We're going to see, number one, the roles stated. Number two, the roles manifested. Number three, the roles defended. And finally, the roles applied. And I will say from the outset that we will only look at the first two here this morning. Now, let me give you the context of first century Corinth. Women in the Greco-Roman world were little more than property in the first century. Men used wives to bear children, to cook meals and keep house, and they used other women, for the most part, for their own pleasure. Most women lived in the shadows. Most women were without dignity. They were without honor often resorting to prostitution to survive. Divorce was rampant. There are ancient records that we have found that will indicate that that many times people divorced almost every year. Some uh, records indicated that, that some had divorced 30 times. And remember, these were young people in comparison to what we have today. Their life expectancy was only 30 to 40 years. So sexual immorality was almost expected. 
This mistreatment of women sparked a feminist movement in the Roman Empire. Some women refused to to bear and raise children because it would ruin their figure and they would live separate lives from their husbands. Others would compete with men in tests of strength. And some attended chariot races we read about, dressed like men. And some even became women wrestlers. So if you want to know where women wrestling started, this is where it started. In fact, Juvenal, who was a late first century Roman satirical, satirical poet, said this, With spear in hand and breasts exposed, they took to pig sticking, which, by the way, was wild boar hunting with a spear. And they typically did this on horseback. Then he went on to say, what modesty can you expect in a woman who wears a helmet, hates her own sex, and delights in feats of strength, end quote. So that gives you a little flavor of what was going on in the culture there. And by the way, if you think about it, it's not all that different today in our culture. So think about this now. In, in the darkness of this kind of dungeon, suddenly the light of the gospel appears. And suddenly, because of the gospel, because of Christianity, women can have true dignity and true honor. But as you might expect, whenever you swim upstream against the culture, Christianity is going to raise many questions about the roles of men and women. And what we see as we study scripture is apparently some of the Corinthian women believed that the role distinctions between the sexes were abolished in Christ. And so they claimed equality in function. And many of them exceeded the bounds of propriety by failing to wear the customary female head covering when they prayed and when they proclaimed the truth of God's word. And so... Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul begins by stating, number one, the roles. The roles stated. Notice what he says in verse 2. He begins by saying, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The term traditions literally means that which has been passed on. And this is a reference to the oral teaching of the apostles. He's praising them. Your doctrine is good. Your lives are messed up, but your doctrine is good. In fact, we, we read this same idea of traditions in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Paul says there, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And then Paul moves from there, and he begins to state the divine standard and this, this divine principle of subordination and authority which is so misunderstood and abused. He begins in verse 3, and he says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Head here is a reference to authority. Colossians 2.10, Christ is the head over all rule and authority. We see the same term used there. We see the same principle of subordination and, and authority in Ephesians 1.20 and following. Referring to Christ, the exalted Christ, we read, God the Father put all things in subjected, subjection under his feet and gave him, referring to Christ, as head over all things to the church. So we see this divine principle of subordination and authority 
in verse 3. And what we're going to see now is that God's plan has nothing to do with inferiority. But everything to do with the reflection of Trinitarian relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you must make that distinction or you'll never understand this passage. And when this is properly understood, it will also manifest itself in how we function in our marriage, in our family, in our worship, in our church life. Now, you will notice that there are three different people who are said to be under authority. Christ has authority over man, man has authority over woman, and God the Father has authority over Christ. Notice first, again in verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And we understand this. The scripture is filled with this concept. You will recall in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 9, at the conclusion of Jesus' humiliation, his time of humiliation, it says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Indeed, Christ has authority over man. It's for this reason that Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has absolute sovereign authority over everything that exists, including your life and mine. He is even ordained to allow evil to temporarily exist within the world. He allows Satan to be the temporary God of this world, but ultimately he is still in control. And he will ultimately accomplish his purposes and perfect plan to bring glory to himself. So whether you mock him, whether you ignore him or hate him, please understand one day you will bow before him and confess him as Lord, which means the one who has absolute sovereign authority. You will either do this willingly or you will do this unwillingly. This will include those 44 senators, whether you're Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi, whether you're Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is, or Vladimir Putin. Every one of us sitting here in this worship center, every one of us will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it says, to the glory of God the Father. So Christ, number one, has authority over man. Secondly, man has authority over woman. He goes on to say, and the man is the head of a woman. And we see this in other passages as well. Let me give you one. Ephesians 5, 23 and 4, it says, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, you know and I know When the inspired apostle says the man is the head of the woman, immediately people who resent the transcendent lawgiver are going to cry foul. Immediately the feminist will cry, you know, such a statement just screams of male chauvinism. It screams of inferiority. And anything that smacks of authority and submission must be shouted down. 
Now, that's to be expected. We read in Scripture that to the natural man, the things of the Spirit are foolishness. They cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. And sadly, there are those within the ranks of evangelicalism who would decry such a passage, saying that these are just the words of Paul. It's not, it's not the words of God, and Paul was a male chauvinist, and he just merely imposed his own biases and bigotry upon others. And sometimes these folks will appeal to such passages as Galatians 3.29, where it says, there is neither male nor female, and also 1 Peter 3.7, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. They will use those passages to refute the idea that husbands are to have authority over their wives and that wives should be submissive to their husbands. Needless to say, they totally reject the idea that women are to be submissive to men in general, even in society, that somehow that that is demeaning to women. But dear friends, what they fail to see, and please hear this, what they fail to see is that God is not even remotely making a distinction in essence. It has nothing to do with essence. It has everything to do with function. The headship of man over a woman does not in any way diminish her worth. Women in general are equal to, to, to men in the realm of intellect, in the realm of abilities and spirituality. I know many women who are far more intelligent and gifted than I am. Many are better speakers, better Bible teachers. Many are more spiritual than men. But none of that matters. That's not the issue here. The issue is not one of inferiority and superiority. It's not one of essence, but rather of divinely ordained functional role relationships. Someone has to be in charge. Someone has to lead. And God's created... creative design here is for men and women to function differently, to function differently in marriage, in family, and in the church. And why is this? Why does he do this? To somehow demean women and exalt men? No, not at all. He has designed it this way in order for us to reflect the relationship that exists within the Trinitarian God. This is the kind of functional submission that is manifested in Christ's relationship to the church and in his relationship to his heavenly father as our redeemer. So I would ask you, what reason could ever be offered to refute the legitimacy of the creator's plan and purpose? I might also add that God's plan establishes order. I mean, think about it. If no one's in charge, everyone's in charge. Or if everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. Even in nature, anything that has two heads is a freak, right? Moreover, God's plan exalts the complementary nature of women with men. The biblical view, by the way, of male-female relationships is called complementarianism, if you want to know the big word there. But what a beautiful thing it is to witness, to see a godly man leading his wife and his family, and to see a godly wife loving her husband, loving her family, to see a man loving his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, and to see a wife joyfully submitting to her husband's godly leadership 
as the head of the family, and then also to witness believers submitting to Christ as head of the church. So indeed, what we see is that men and women are equal in their essential dignity as human beings, but different and complementary in function. This is God's perfect will for his creation. And those who are submissive to God will gladly submit to those he has placed in authority over them, even if that person is less qualified. And boy, have we all experienced that. Sometimes that's the case in the marriage, where, frankly, the wife would be more qualified than the husband to lead. But that is not God's plan. We've all had to be under the authority of people that are unqualified at work, at school, at government, or in government. In fact, as I think about it, there are people in government today that couldn't lead a blind billy goat out of a burning barn. But we submit to them in authority because God has asked us to do so. Unless they ask us to do something that would violate what God has asked us to do. So, Christ has authority over man, man has authority over woman, and third, and God is the head of Christ. Wow. What an exclamation point Paul puts on his argument here. Think about it. In his incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ set aside his attributes, and he willingly subordinated himself to the Father in his role as Savior. He submitted himself completely to the will of the Father. Jesus said, In John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And also in chapter 5 and verse 30, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, obviously, there is no superiority or inferiority in the triune Godhead. There's no distinction in essence between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are what we call, in theological terms, consubstantial. They are of the same essence. But there is a distinction in function, in their role. But I hope you understand, Christ's functional submission to the Father does not in any way imply inferiority. And that's Paul's point. Likewise, women are not inferior to men. There's no distinction in essence. But there is a distinction in role and in functional, the, the functional aspects of relationships. Beloved, God's perfect plan is for the role relationships between men and women to mirror the role relationships between the Father and the Son and the Son and His church. This is a plan that by necessity requires authority and submission to be a natural and welcomed part of our lives. I remember a young couple who wanted me to perform their, their marriage and their wedding, and um, they came to me to ask if I would do that, and I told them that, you know, we've got about 14 to 16 weeks of premarital counseling that you're going to have to go through, And so, okay, well, that'll be fine. So we got to talking a little bit about it. And one of the things I discovered is that they did not want anything in their vows that spoke of the wife submitting to her husband. Well, naturally, that sparked a bit of a debate. And they obviously didn't understand these things. 
And I, I might add that I was unable to marry them. They did, however, get married, and two years later they divorced. I'm not saying that that always happens, but when you violate God's plan and you somehow impose your own, you're on thin ice, to say the least. I also remember, it just dawned on me, the, the, the platform here used to be different. The, the, the church was, the stage and everything was different. Um, and I remember performing um, uh, a wedding, and I obviously said some things that weren't very popular, as I tend to do. And the people were filing by, and I was standing here, and all of a sudden a little group came by, and this one guy looked up to me, and he said very loudly, let's get out of here, that preacher's an idiot. And I could tell that uh, I wasn't going to get a Christmas card that year from him. But, but the point is, folks, th- these things are very unpopular in our culture. And by the way, you have to, as believers, you have to decide, am I going to be faithful or am I going to be popular? Because you can't be both. So Paul begins with the roles stated. Secondly, the roles manifested. And here we must put ourselves as best we can in the cultural context of the first century Corinthian church. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying. By the way, prophesying here doesn't mean predicting the future. That's what our English mind typically goes to. It has the idea of proclaiming divine truth. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, the phrase something on his head in the original language literally means to have something hanging down from one's head. Now, we're not real sure what this looked like, but we may gain some understanding by the term covering in verse 15. Um, Perebolio. Uh, it's a, it, it's, it was a Greek term that means to, to wrap around with a cloth. And so probably what the head covering was is some kind of a shawl rather than a veil, a full veil. That's probably what he has in mind. So he's basically saying here, look, no man is going to wear a shawl on his head when he comes to church, when he prays and, and he speaks about the things of God. I mean, no man's going to act in such a feminine way. And were he to do that, it would be a disgrace. Because we see all through Scripture, especially here, anytime you blur the distinction between maleness and femaleness, you violate not only the principle of authority and submission, but you also also violate the glorious realities of how God has defined us, how he has created us as men and women. And again, our role relationships are to reflect the sacred role of authority and submission within the triune Godhead. But he goes on to say in verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman who has, whose head is shaved. Now, in that culture, it was a custom to reflect this divine principle of subordination and, and submission and headship, I might say, by covering your head. So it would be a disgrace for a woman to uncover her head. And so what we see is a Christian man who prayed with, or prophesied without a head covering demonstrated 
uh, his loving authority over, over women, but women who covered their head in these ministries, they would also demonstrate their gracious submission to men. But when you violated that for the men or the women, all of a sudden it was a disgrace. Now, I might add that we see similar symbols of head covering in, in many Near East countries today. You see married women who wear a veil to indicate their unwillingness to be seen by another man to somehow um, reserve her beauty for her husband. And in some way, this was true for the people in Corinth, especially Christian women who wished to symbolize their devotion to God and their husband. So they wore some kind of a shawl. But what's interesting for the feminists of that day especially in the church at Corinth, they would show their rebellion by, shall we say, shedding their shawls and wearing very short hair or even shaving their heads like men. They wanted to look like men. They wanted to be treated like men. So that many declared their independence by wearing men's clothes, we know, historically. Some of them took upon themselves jobs that were traditionally held by men. They would abandon their children, abandon their husband. And knowing that this kind of rebellious mindset had been brought into the church, Paul says in verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. In other words, if you are going to violate the male-female role distinctions by refusing to wear the cultural symbol of a head covering, then you might as well just go ahead and cut off all your hair or even shave your head. By the way, that was a, that was a terrible thing in that culture because that's what the prostitutes did. We know from some other historical evidence that, that many times adulteresses would have their heads shaved. And so the feminists would also shave their head. And to be sure, beautifully styled hair is a glory to a woman, we see in verse 15. It's given to her as a covering or for a covering. It's it's God's special gift to her. The the hair for a woman accentuates her beauty, doesn't it? It it adorns her with with just the the beauty of of a well-styled hairdo. And it can be short, it can be long, and especially in our culture, it's not like when you see a, a woman with short hair, unless it's maybe real short and butchy looking, you, you don't think necessarily of, of, a, of a man, but you know that women's hair is a beautiful thing. It expresses her femininity, her softness, her gentle spirit. But he goes on to say, at the end of verse 6, but if... It is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved. Let her cover her head. In other words, it is disgraceful for a woman to look like a man. So wearing a head covering in that culture conveyed a submissive heart, one that honored the male-female role relationship set forth in Scripture. And it also, I might add... um, demonstrated that a woman was comfortable with her femininity. She was comfortable with being a woman. And feminine adornment in every culture says the same thing. Now, you must understand, the issue here is not wearing or not wearing a head covering for a woman. That's not the issue. God doesn't care if you do or you don't. The issue is rebelling against 
God's ordained roles in relationships between men and women, whatever that might look like in a culture. And we all know what looks masculine and what looks feminine in our culture. If I came to church next Sunday wearing makeup, some eyeshadow, and I don't know, some type of these running pants that women wear, these skin-tight things, and I've got on a, a satin shirt with some lace up around here, I mean, you would all say, who is that and what have you done with our pastor, right? I hope you would say that. I mean, we all know what the symbols of maleness and femaleness are in our culture. And God basically says, don't blur the line. You know, he's not saying men can't wear satin. I don't guess. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he is. <laughs> I mean, certainly we need to leave off the makeup and the ruffles. I, I can understand that. But what God is saying is that the cultural symbols of maleness and femaleness are there to reflect a person's gender distinction and the complementary nature of role relationships between men and women. Folks, look what happens when a culture rebels against God's order. Women begin looking like men and men start looking like women. I can't tell you how many times I'll say to Nancy, is, is that a man or a woman? And lots of times she'll say, I'm not sure. It's sad, isn't it? I remember being in a, in a conference in my doctoral studies, and this lady was there, and it, it, kind of a long story. But anyway, in talking with me, I remember her telling me that, that I needed to get in touch with my feminine side. I remember saying very quickly, ma'am, I don't have a feminine side. I think I also added, if I ever found it, I would destroy it. (laughs) Men do not have feminine sides. Women do not have masculine sides. We are men and we are women. Rejoice in that. Celebrate that. Our godless culture is bent on the feminization of the American male, isn't it? All you have to do is look around and see this. I'm not telling you anything anything new. Now, I know some of you might say, well, well what if you have, have, have a little boy that's just naturally effeminate? Well, every situation is different, but I can tell you from years of experience with this stuff, probably the first thing you need to do is get him away from his mama, especially once he's about 12 or 13. A lot of times you have to get him away from daddy too, but certainly get him out of that environment that celebrates that type of stuff and get him around godly men that love Christ, love their wives, and are men. And we all know what that is in our culture. That's what they need to see modeled for them. And then in the midst of that, their true masculinity will begin to blossom. And that's where they will find real joy as men. I remember the first time I saw young men in Nashville. This was back several years ago. I don't get to Nashville much, by the way, and for a number of reasons, the traffic being one of them, but there's other reasons too. I'm just uncomfortable down there anymore. I remember the first time I went down there and I, I was asked to go to this restaurant with some guys and, and we were sitting around. All of a sudden I started looking around and there, there's these young men and, and they're, they're wearing a little bit of makeup and they've got fingernail polish and, and clothes that looked real feminine and and I remember seeing this thinking, my, what's going on here? And, and we talked about it a little bit. And he said, well, one of the guys said, those are metrosexuals, metrosexuals. 
I said, metrosexual, what's that? Well, that's that. I mean, they're not homosexual, but they like to look feminine. They like to do feminine things. And, you know, they talk. They've kind of got the limp wrist thing going on. And, and the way they walk and talk, they, you know, they, they do women's things. And we all know what that looks like, right? They like to go shopping with the girls. I mean, they're just very, very different. And you see, even now, androgyny is all the rage, isn't it? Where you can't really tell, you know, which is which. And sometimes you see women that, that, are, that, that look extreme, you know. You, you, just, you just wonder, what's going on with these dear people? Now, folks, why do you think Satan is so committed to destroying God's design for male and female role relationships. Have you ever thought about that? Why is that such a big deal? Well, the answer is simple. He wants to destroy the only two institutions that God has ordained, marriage and the church. Christ is to be the head of them both. Both are to glorify God by worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head, the authority of them both. For example, think about marriage for a second. Marriage in the family. That's the foundational institution of our society intended to bring glory to God. Marriage is to illustrate God's covenantal love to us through selfless sacrifice. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ and how he loves his bride, the church. It is to picture the loving headship of a husband and the husband's loving headship with his wife is to picture Christ's love for his bride. And the joyful submission of a wife pictures the, the joyful submission of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, marriage is God's special gift to man and to woman to enjoy the blessings of physical intimacy and the privilege of enjoying God's gift of children, which fulfills God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and raise your children to love Christ. So Satan is doing all he can to destroy this. And now he seduced human beings to even redefine gender. Incomprehensible. There are now anywhere from three to 112 different genders. Do you realize that? You can look them up. Facebook now offers 50 different gender identity options for new users. The state of Oregon has now made it legal for 15-year-olds to get a state-funded sex change operation without parental, parental notification. Dear Christian, don't miss this. Satan and his world system despises God's design for male-female role relationships. Satan and this world system despises marriage between a man and a woman because that is the very bedrock of society. When marriages collapse, the families collapse. When families collapse... Societies collapse. When societies collapse, nations collapse. When nations collapse, civilizations collapse. This is where we're heading, headed. You see, there can be no social order apart from the proper role relationships between men and women, including the divine principle of authority and submission. That is God's design. And dear friends, that can never happen 
apart from private virtue that is anchored in the truths of the word of the living God and the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So, in summary, as we close here this morning, don't bring disgrace upon yourself as a man or a woman by blurring the God-ordained distinctions between maleness and femaleness. Honor God's design for, for male and female role relationships, especially as it relates to the whole principle of authority and submission that reflects the role relationship within the Trinitarian Godhead. And I, I must say, I am so thankful for a godly heritage, and I know many of you can say the same thing. Godly grandparents and parents a godly wife who honors Christ and who even honors her undeserving husband. Well, I'm so thankful for each of you. I see these, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you need to hear these things to be reminded of them, to teach your children. But what a blessing you all are. What a testimony of God's transforming grace. A testimony of the principle even of authority and submission that is reflected in your marriages that is reflected in how you conduct yourself as people in society and even in the church. So I rejoice in that. Well, we've examined the roles stated and the roles manifested. The next time, we'll look at the roles defended and the roles applied, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths that you reveal to us in your word. And even though they are radically different from that which we are accustomed to in our godless culture. We know that this is your word, your design, your perfect will for our lives. And I pray that each of us will apply these things where appropriate in our lives, that we might not only bring glory to you, but bring blessing to ourselves, to our our marriages, to our families, to people around us. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it is to be truly born again, to be, to be saved, to know the living Christ, I pray that today you will bring conviction to them, and that today they will bow before the cross in repentant faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace his saving grace with all of their heart. So we commit all of this to you. In the precious name of Jesus, and for his sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.